Tonight we're starting a new study in the book of Jude. Jude. So all the way in the back of your New Testament. Just keep turning. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. Then you can turn back. Small little book. Thank you for those songs too, Rudy. That... uh, that that last song really goes with what we're we're teaching tonight. For the Lord is good and faithful; He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Amen. Amen. Well, as we look at this small, tiny book, it's not the smallest book. It's the fourth smallest book in the New Testament. You have uh, Second and Third John and Philemon. But um, this book is uh, interesting because even though it's just 25 25 verses, it uh, really speaks to what a lot of us um, in the church go through uh, in the society in which we live. And I'm reminded of Proverbs 23, uh, 23 that says this, this was Solomon And his admonition, he says, buy truth and do not sell it. In other words, think of truth as a commodity. And it reflects that that fact that that truth is a a precious commodity throughout the scriptures. And the idea, unfortunately, today has left this society the idea that there can be any truth. Truth is relative. We all know that. Everything can you can have your own truth. You know, you can be a man and think you're a woman. That's your truth. Um, but God does say that, God, that the, the, the God of the Bible is a God of truth. He says that in Psalm 31.5, Isaiah 65.16. And he's magnified his, his word as truth. Psalm 119 speaks of the truth of God. Jesus himself said in John... The Gospel of John, John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. And then he tells us what the truth is. Your word is truth. right? So the Lord Jesus Christ himself, God in human flesh, full of grace and truth, it says, he called himself the way, the truth, right, and the life. And so truth is something that we want to hold dear um, to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is known as the Spirit of Truth, um, sealing the salvation of those who embrace Christ and embrace the message of truth, the gospel. And so we, we really have to understand that this is an important subject matter for us to delve into because there's so much mistruth out there today, <laughs> okay, whether it's in the media, whether it's in science, whether it's in all over the place, right? People are telling you all kinds of things that they'll put up their right hand and say, oh, I swear this is true. But the next day, they're saying, oh, I'm swearing this is true, right? And it's completely polarized. I don't know if you watched any of the debates last night. I had a chance to watch a couple of them recorded. And it's amazing that some of these candidates would say, oh, no, I'm for this, even though there's a, there's a videotape and a recording of them saying, no, I'm definitely not ag- I'm against that. And they just come out and they just, well, they don't even twist it. They just lie, frankly. They're not telling the truth. 
And so this message of the truth, by believing the truth, we believe as the church of Christ that people are set free from two things, from sin and from death, from sin and death. And we sometimes, as God's people, I think we forget the importance of the truth. We forget how blessed we are to be in a a, a Bible-believing church that that upholds God's truth. Um, So we sometimes forget the importance of God's truth, but guess who never forgets the importance of God's truth? Satan. He knows God's word is true. He knows the power of God's word. He's called the what? The father of lies. Um, Ever since the the fall, he's done everything within his power to destroy, to suppress, to hide, to twist the truth. Constantly trying to replace the truth of God with some form of deception, some form of falsehood. His deadliest attacks, ironically, don't come from those who openly reject the truth. Uh, These attacks don't come mainly from atheists, people that believe there's no God at all. But really, these attacks come from within. They, They come from those who profess to know the truth, who profess to believe the truth, but they're liars. They lie. And his most effective agents, Satan's most effective agents, really secretly infiltrate the church and they pass themselves off as genuine believers, genuine shepherds, genuine leaders, and they lead the whole flock astray. And so we have to kind of be aware of this. Um, They're not genuine leaders. They're not genuine shepherds. They're not genuine believers. They're, they're really imposters. They're defectors. They're apostates who claim to know Christ. There's a lot of people today that, in the church even, that come to church every week, oh yeah, I know Jesus. But if you were to follow them around for a week, you would say, that, that person definitely doesn't know Jesus. Or they don't know the Jesus I know. Because they're living a life that's totally opposite of what the Bible says we should live as believers. And in fact, in the end, they reject Christ. They're just professing him. They verbally affirm their knowledge, the knowledge of his word, but their actions indicate that they are actually enemies of the truth. My one granddaughter, Gabby, Gabrielle, called this, I think it was Monday or Tuesday or whatever it was, and she said, Grandpa, I got saved last night. And I said, what? You got saved from what? <laughs> so I got saved. I mean, I had 1.30 in the morning, and... I couldn't sleep, and in the youth group, we talked about this, and the pastor on Sunday, he talked about that, and I was just laying there in bed wondering why I haven't been baptized, why I haven't followed the Lord in in the waters of baptism, and finally I realized because I'm not a believer, (laughs) and I needed to be saved, and she was crying, and she poured her, her heart out to the Lord, and God saved her, but she knew the word. I mean, this kid was in Awana. She memorized scriptures. She got an award one year for memorizing so much scripture. But by her own profession, she said, yeah, but I didn't know God. I knew all this stuff about raised in a Christian family, knew all this stuff about church, the Bible, everything, but I didn't know Christ. And so we have to be careful. Um, In Romans 
16, 18, uh, Paul indicates that these people are slaves, these, these false professions, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites and their smooth and flattering speech. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. There's a lot of people out there that could really, you know, preach up a storm. They're very gifted. They're nice to look at. They speak very well. But unfortunately, they are a slave to their own appetites. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, Paul says this, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's why I always say, if someone says, Oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I mean, it's hard not to take somebody at their word, but at the same time, in my heart, I'm like, yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> Let me get to know you a little bit more. Because there's so many people today that profess Christ, that don't even know Christ. And so we have to be very diligent and very vigilant about the truth. And you have to vigorously oppose this kind of teaching. You have to root it out, and you don't want to cause other people to stumble um, when they come in into contact with false teachers. So you have to teach about this stuff. And the New Testament over and over and over again repeatedly warns about the danger of these teachers, these, these apostate false teachers that are posing, that are within the church. They're pretending to be something else. Um, Jesus in Matthew 7.15 and Acts uh, Paul in Acts 20, 29, both basically talked about their, their savagery and it talked about vicious wolves. They're, 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 they're sheep in what? Wolves' clothing. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, excuse me. And in Matthew 24, verse 11, Jesus warned this, many false prophets will arise. So this shouldn't surprise us as a church. You know, sometimes we look around and we go, man, doesn't anybody teach the truth anymore? Well, it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said, many false prophets will arise and will what? Mislead many. They will mislead many. Paul even cautioned Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. And sometimes, you know, you can, you can hear these teachers speak, and you can hear these people who profess to be Christ speak, and boy, they, they got, you know, verses dripping out their ears. And they can quote the address and quote this and run around and do all this stuff, but you know what? In the end, they're following doctrines of demons because when you check out the theology, it doesn't hold true to what the Bible is teaching. Peter and John also warned of these spiritual pretenders, as did Jude. But, you know, this letter that, that Jude writes here is a very forceful uh, condemnation of false teachers. I think probably when he first started out, he wanted to write a letter that was encouraging. <laughs> but somehow he got some news about these false teachers, and it kind of broke up the, <laughs> the encouraging part, and it became very... Um, a letter of condemnation against false teachers who were really even infiltrating the church all the way back when he wrote this letter. Uh, 
One commentator, Thomas Schreiner, says this, Jude's message of judgment is especially relevant to people today, for our churches are prone to sentimentality, suffer from moral breakdown, and too often fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. You know, today we think, well, love just covers everything. Oh, just love. Let's hold hands and sing kumbaya. He goes on, he says, Jude's letters, letter reminds us that errant teaching, wrong teaching, and dissolute living have dire consequences. And in the end, when you, when you fail to heed Jude's message, it results in a very compromising, a very uh, uh, wrong message that compromises the faith which was once handed down to the saints. So what's the theme of the book? The theme is basically, you can read it for yourself there, in, in verse, uh, verse 3, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to what? What's he say? To contend for the faith, which was once delivered down to the saints. Contend for the faith. That word contend comes from our, uh, the, the Greek word we get the English word agonize from. Um, and and it's, it's to, it means to fight, to struggle, to battle, to give great effort, to give great exertion. A, a, a gizomai is in the original, and it has a little kind of a, a epigizomai is what the, the word is, and it means to even do it more. That's where some translations say contend earnestly, fight earnestly. For the faith. And that's what we have to do. We can't just relax and, and, and pretend that, oh, everything will be okay. Because it won't be. Well, let's look at the atmosphere here and the date of this writing. The background the, and the, the setting of this, this little letter. And we're going to actually read through it tonight, too, if we have time. But um, what's interesting is usually when the writers of the New Testament write a letter, they address it to somebody. And he does, but it's a very generic address. There's no specific church mentioned here. There's no group of churches mentioned. He, we, we, we don't know who he addressed his epistle to. He doesn't really tell us. He does say to those who are called, and we'll get into that. But a lot of commentators say because of his choice of illustrations from the Old Testament, he was probably most likely addressing predominantly Jewish Believers, people who were saved out of Judaism, they were now Christians, and he was probably writing to them saying, hey, be careful because people are infiltrating your churches and you need to ha know how to deal with them. Um, it's alarming that false teachers had already invaded these congregations in which he, he wrote this, this letter. It was already happening. And you say, well, when did he write this little letter here? Most commentators put it between 68 and 70. Probably before 70, because he doesn't mention anything about the, the destruction of Jerusalem, and that was a pretty big event. He probably would have used it as an illustration of God's judgment if it would have happened before he wrote his letter, but he doesn't do that. And it was probably written, written after Second Peter at some point. 
and if you read the, the books of First and Second Peter and Jude, they're very similar. A lot of warning of false teaching, especially in Second Second Peter. <clears throat> but there's nothing in this epistle, there's nothing in this letter that indicates when it was written. Our best guess is 68 to 70. And that's not too far after Christ. You know, Christ probably left the earth about 33. And um, so th- that's how fast things disintegrated within the, this brand new church that was, was born on the day of Pentecost. So we could say 68 to 70 after Peter finished his, his second epistle sometime. And if you read those two, they're very similar. There's a lot of similar language used and everything like that. And the, the difference being this. Peter, in his letter, he predicts these false teachers. When you read through that, it'll say, oh, these false teachers will come. They're coming. It's like a warning. But then when you get to Jude, he's like, no, they're already here. Okay, they're, they're, we've got to be careful. They're already here. And that's where we, we are today. Trust me, false teachers are everywhere today. We don't know where Jude wrote uh, this, this letter when he penned it. Um, since his brother was uh, the brother of our Lord and headed the Jerusalem ch- church, maybe it was there. We don't know. Um, maybe he used Jerusalem as a home base. Uh, we don't know. We're just not told. But the man who wrote this, he tells us in the first verse, Jude, a servant of Christ and brother of James. Now, and if you go through the New Testament, you do a little search. It lists eight men named Jude or Judas. This Jude is just another version of Judas, which is kind of ironic because he's talking about <laughs> false teachers and all this stuff. And, you know, you remember what Judas did, right? Hung Jesus out to dry. So uh, he was definitely an imposter among the twelve. And... Um, but that name was very, very popular back in that day. Uh, it translates from the, the Hebrew name Judah. Judah, Jude, Judas. Okay. Um, a lot of people believe that it was popular because of Judas, the hero of the Maccabean revolt under the, against the Greek ruler uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century B.C., and that was kind of a big deal, and so people started naming their, their children after that. But these, of the eight mentioned in the New Testament named Jude or Judas, uh, only two are associated with someone named James. So that kind of limits it down. So it's got to be one of the two. And uh, we have two candidates here for those who have written this, this epistle. One would be the Apostle Jude. The other one was, would be Jude, the half-brother of the Lord. We believe that it is the second, the half-brother of the Lord, and I'll tell you why. Um, The Apostle Jude can be ruled out because he was a son, not the brother of a man named James. And here it seems to indicate that he was the brother of James. Uh, And so the the writer of, of Jude however, distinguishes himself all the way down in verse, I think it's in verse 17, from the other apostles. Uh, He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He probably wouldn't have said it that way if he was an apostle, right? That wouldn't make any sense. So this is definitely talking about the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, James. 
And um, the, the writer of, of, of Jude is the half-brother of, of Jesus. And James, with whom Jude identified himself, was the half-brother of Jesus, the head of Jerusalem church, uh, the author of the epistle of James. And uh, after the martyrdom of, of the apostle James, there's really no other James in the early church who could just be mentioned by James, the brother of, of James, and you would know who he's talking about. I mean, all the other ones are just kind of, you know, obsolete names. So um, it, it makes sense that it was the half-brother of Christ. Uh, what's, what's interesting to me is that being the half-brother of Christ and his other brothers apparently did the same thing, uh, they never really identified themselves. He doesn't say Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and his brother, or his half-brother. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that. Um, you know, hey, I, somehow I'm related here, you know, just to let you know. Uh, no. Uh, and, and that's what, what happens a, a lot of times. And, and the reason is just because I think his other brothers, including James, um, Jude didn't believe in the deity of Christ when Jesus was here. His own family turned on him. Even his own family didn't believe that he was the Messiah until after, what, he was raised from the dead. Then they began to put the, the pieces of the puzzle together. I mean, can you imagine growing up with Jesus and not believing that he was God? And then all of a sudden he's raised from the dead. And Yeah, there was that one time. Remember when we were playing out back and he, he kind of did something that was kind of crazy? You know, I mean, you, you kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together and realize, whoa, that really was God. Um, but it was the, the resurrection that really put him over, over the edge there. And so after the resurrection, Jesus' relationship with his siblings changed. And we, we see that in Mark chapter 3 and in John chapter 2 when, when Jesus is teaching. And it says there that, um, you know, hey, your, your, your mother, remember, your mother and your brothers are waiting for you. And he says, who are my mothers and my brothers? You know, he was setting himself apart from his family at that point in time. He was, no, their Lord. He was their Savior. Okay, he wasn't just their, their brother. But little is known about Jude. We don't know apart from this epistle, anything. According to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9, verse 5, you can conclude that he was married and he had an itinerant ministry as an evangelist because Paul uses the apostles, it says, uh, like the other brothers of our Lord who went out and, and did ministry, you know, why can't I take a wife along? All right? and, and so he's indicating that all the other ones had wives, which would include this, this individual. But... Um, there is one story in, in it's, it's basically legend uh, in history that talks about Jude, his grandsons, and they were brought from, uh, brought before the, the Roman emperor uh, 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 Domitian, Domitian, excuse me, and the, the emperor was questioning them about their loyalty because they were descendants of the Davidic royal line and so he wanted to say, hey, are you going to be loyal to me or whatever? But he learned that they were basically simple farmers. And this is all conjecture. But, and so the, the emperor kind of dismissed them. But apart from that account, tradition is silent regarding this individual. So we don't know a lot about him. But we do know, it tells us right there, that he was a what? He was a servant of Jesus Christ. He, he called himself a servant of Christ. As all the followers of Christ should call themselves servants of Christ, right? It was for Jude as well. And um, 
One, one commentary pointed out that he said this. He said, the people closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves servants. You know, uh, and that's true. That, that's a very true statement. When you, when you see somebody lifting themselves up and they're unwilling to serve, then you've got to question, really, well, do they really know the Christ of the Bible? Or are they just trying to lift themselves up and exalt themselves? So with that kind of introduction, open up and follow along, and I'll read this book, just 25 verses, like I said, but I just want to take the time to read the whole thing tonight. We're not going to obviously go through the whole thing. We're just going to look at the first two verses. But um, he starts off with a greeting. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and, and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, there you go, he was kind of eager to write him a real favorable letter, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Well, verse 4 tells us, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you, were full, although you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day just as sodom and gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire verse 8 Yet in like manner, these people also, this is what he's drawing the equation here, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous, uh, a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively woe to them for they walked in the way of cain and are and abandoned themselves for the the sake of gain to balaam's error and perished in korah's rebellion these are hidden reefs at your love feasts and they feast with you without fear shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever very graphic language he uses to describe these false teachers. It was also about these that Enoch, 
The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment, judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And then he switches and he says, but you... <laughs> You, in contrast to these false people, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh verse 24 he starts his closing words here his doxology now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Very powerful writing. I mean, you could tell that Jude was obviously moved by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this. He, he sat down to pen a letter of maybe encouragement and, and, and maybe common faith that they shared, and, and all of a sudden... The Spirit said, no, you've got to go in this direction. Sorry. Well, let's look at the audience here. We've looked at the atmosphere. We've looked at the author. He says right there in verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Or some translations read, kept by Jesus Christ. He, he writes this letter um, according to the... These, these, these final words. And, you know, he, he follows up the author's name with two descriptive phrases. Um, those who are called, he starts off. Those who are called. And the two descriptive phrases are beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus, or kept by Jesus Christ. Um, and with the phrase here, to those, it's kind of neat because he's not really addressing any one person. So guess what? Just like it applied to them, it applies to us today. It's a very wide net he's throwing. No single person is ever really listed out here. And it's not limited to a particular church. Jude wrote for the masses of men and women and even other, other churches that were in his time. And he says, those who are, and he lists three words there. Look at those three words, called, beloved, and kept. Called, beloved, and kept. He really wants us to understand that this is a specific message for a specific group of people. But that group of people is very widespread. So he's not writing to an individual church or an individual Christian. 
but he's writing to all those who are beloved or called beloved and kept. And it's, it's, it, it literally reads in the original language, to those who are beloved, or to those beloved kept who are called. That's what the original language, actually, the literal Greek, to those beloved kept who are called. Um, Jude wanted his, his readers to really sense something of this overwhelming power, the overwhelming glory of God. The idea that they are called, the idea that they are beloved, the idea that they are kept. When you think about your salvation, those three words should mean something. That God, first of all, he called you. Kletos in the original language has the idea of being personally chosen or selected. Personally. Not a generic cattle call. Very specifically it translates the active pronoun kletos, which, which is, is related to the, the verb kaleo, which means to call. It's the main word in the sentence. And then it has those two perfect pa- passive participles, beloved and kept. Um, even the English translation suggests the word conveys the idea of being personally chosen or, or selected. God has called believers to himself. He has set them apart. He has chosen them as his children. Now, Jude here is not speaking of God's general invitation to sinners. This isn't a general call. This is a very specific call. Because the the general invitation to sinners, when you go out and you share the gospel with people, that's a a general invitation to sinners. You're saying, come to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Ask Christ to forgive your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. That's the general invitation. But only God can give the salvific invitation or the specific invitation, the invitation that actually saves Because the general invitation, I don't know about you, but I've shared Christ with a lot of people. And usually the message of Christ goes unheeded. It goes rejected. They don't want to hear it. Don't tell me I need to get saved. Who do you think you are, right? But here he's speaking of of God's special internal call that only he can give. Where he awakens the human will and he imparts, he gives spiritual life. And what does it do? It enables once dead sinners to embrace the gospel of faith. We could never be saved left to our own demise. We would never choose Christ. Ever. God had to call us. And that's a very hard doctrine for some people to understand. I don't understand it. Why would God choose me? <laughs> why didn't he choose my neighbor? Keep praying for him, but why doesn't he do it? Did he? I don't know. It's what Jesus said in John six forty four. He says, no one can come to me, what? Unless the Father draws him. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. You have to be called. How do you know who's called? Because they respond to the gospel. They hear the gospel 
and they say, wow, okay, yeah, I th- this is something I, I, I need. I remember when someone shared the gospel with me, kept on saying the same verse over and over for like an hour. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Steve. I know, but I'm not like my brothers. I'm not like this person. I'm not like that. I'm, I'm Steve. I'm, I'm little Stevie Converse. I don't do those things. And he said, that makes no difference. And he just kept on saying it over and over. What does it say? It says, for all have sinned. Are you perfect? Do you think you're God? Well, no, I would never say that. So you have sinned, Steve, right? Well, yeah, little things. It doesn't matter. See, it doesn't matter you're not an axe murderer, okay, or a mass murderer. I mean, you could have told one little lie in your life. Guess what? That's, that's going to keep you out of heaven. It's only, it's only one sin. It doesn't even matter the gravity of the sin because you're missing the mark that God has laid out for us. That's what sin is. It's missing that mark. You know, you don't get points if you don't hit the bullseye. It doesn't work that way. And see, that's so opposite of what our, our culture teaches us, right? I mean, today, guess what? Everybody gets a trophy, right? It doesn't mean you're, it doesn't matter your team stinks and, and you came in last place. We're still going to give you a trophy because we love you. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and so we have this culture where, where young people, they'll go to a job and they'll have to work. And they're, well, wait a minute. I, I don't feel, you know, I should have to do all this work. Well, then go find another job. You know, you, you don't have rights just to, to, to proclaim like that. And so we, we've spoiled our culture. And so people are used to getting trophies for doing absolutely nothing. It doesn't work that way with God. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. And so we have to understand that, you know what? If we're going to come to Christ, we have to come, come to God. We have to come through Christ. It's God who laid this plan out. We didn't lay it out. God's people are God's people because of God's choice. Well, that's not fair. Are you saying that God's not fair? Do you really want to have that conversation with God? Do you want God to give you fairness? Because in all honesty, if God were to give you what's fair, you'd be in hell for all eternity. You don't want what God thinks is fair. So he says that we're called. And God is the initiator of that call. He's the first pursuer. He pursues us. We don't pursue him. He will beckon us. And we come. And we come because we are called. Um, Charles Spurgeon once was trying to figure this out. Brilliant man. And he was trying to fathom the depths of this wonderful reality of being sought out by God. And he was overwhelmed, he writes, by the truth of God. The idea that the Lord of the universe decided, even delighted, to be in a relationship with him as a fallen sinner. Here you have a perfect being saying, no, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to love you. And he wrote this about what he was trying to express. He says, I believe the doctrine of election, the idea that God called us, the, guy, the idea that God chose us. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. 
and I am sure he chose me before I was born. Or else, he never would have chose me afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. That's a very humble answer to a very deep question. Why did God set his love upon us? I don't know, but I'm sure glad he did. I mean, the experiential effect of knowing that God has called us to himself is kind of like, it's just unconditional love flowing, just flowing um, into our hearts. That God would have me, a fallen sinner, could never do anything to be saved. What an incredible thought that is. And I'm sure that, that, that Jude's readers felt something of that, that comfort too. The idea that God would put his love upon me. Perhaps his letter arrived just when they needed that comforting hand, those comforting words, that you are called, that God called you. That's how God works sometimes. Sometimes we're at a spot in life and all of a sudden we turn on the radio, we listen to a preacher, we do something, and it's just what we need to hear at that time. Because God knows what we need to hear. He knows everything. He knows everything about us. The Bible says he knows how many hairs are on our heads or lack thereof. So we have to be clear of that, that, that God called us. Now, I want to say this, um, being called or, or even being kept, as we're going to talk about here in a second, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we don't keep ourselves as well. That we don't persevere, because we're called to persevere as well. You don't, you know, okay, God saved me, now I can just relax and do whatever I want, because all my sins are paid for, so I'll just go to heaven. Who cares what I do? No. Now, the Bible says very clearly that we should examine our hearts. We should examine our actions. We should examine daily to see whether or not we are in the faith. Is God working in our lives? You know, or if someone comes up and says, well, you know, what's your story? What's, what's God mean to you? And the only answer you have is, oh, when I was three, I raised a hand in a Sunday school class and said I believed in Jesus. And that's it? That's all God's done for you? Nothing since then? I would examine that decision. I would examine your calling to make sure that you're in the faith. Because God doesn't just save us and then walk away. He deposits the Holy Spirit within us. He gives us the Word of God. He gives us the church. He expects something from us in our daily life. I heard somebody say one time, oh, Jesus is just you know, for people that need, need a crutch. Yeah. I, you know, I need as many crutches as I can get. Because standing on my own, I sink every time. And so would you. So we are, we are called, the idea of personally being chosen or selected by God. And Jude starts off with that because I think that if, if you don't understand that, you don't understand salvation. If you think somehow you picked God to be on your team, 
not the other way around. You, you got a warped view of your salvation experience. And so he starts off right at the bat, the foundation, laying a foundation here to those who are called. And then he says, secondly, beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. Agape, the, the, the word love is used here. And why did God choose us? Why did God call us? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. It's that simple. It's based totally on his sovereign pleasure. And totally for reasons beyond our own human comprehension. Why God saved each of us, I don't know. The Father purposed to set his love on certain sinners and then redeem them through his son's sacrifice on the cross. And you know what? We didn't have to get cleaned up. You know, a lot of people in the church think, well, you know, I'm too bad to go to church, so I've got to get my, i got to get off the drugs and stop sleeping around and do all this stuff, and then I'll come to church when I'm looking a little better. You don't have to get cleaned up to come to Christ. As a matter of fact, he says so much. In Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love toward us, what? In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you when you were a sinner, not when you were a saint. So he says, you don't have to get cleaned up. You just come to me. If I'm calling you, respond to the call. If you've heard the gospel message and you know well, how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you, you have a decision to make. It's not decisional regeneration because you don't make the decision without God's interaction. But it's still you got a decision to make. Are you going to yield control of your life to the Savior or not? Are you going to trust him with the rest of your earthly life each and every day or not? I mean, you can continue living the way you're living. You might be living semi-moral life according to the world. But it's not about this, this time here on this earth, right? I mean, we're all going to die one day. Visited a neighbor the other day. Uh, some of you know uh, body, uh, Buddy and, and Connie. And Buddy's not doing too well. He's got cancer in his spine and can't walk now and has no feeling in his legs. And, and I was in his room the other day and I was just telling him. I said, Buddy, I, I, I know you've heard it from Al, our neighbor, the guy who used to come to church here. But, you know, you need to put your faith and trust in Christ. And he's nodding his head. And I said, well, you, you know, you, this isn't something to be played around with. I know you know the gospel. We've shared it with you time and time again. Um, this is very serious. And I told him. I said, you know what? We're all going to die one day. Every one of us is going to die one day. Pending the Lord's return. We're going to die. We're going to breathe our last. And then we're going to be ushered into eternity. You don't want to make that step into eternity not knowing for sure that you've placed your faith and trust in the only Savior that there is, Jesus Christ. Nobody else is going to save you. The Pope's not going to save you. The priest isn't going to save you. It's only Christ. It's only Christ. And so this is, is so important because it indicates here the, the, the tense of this, this verb here, perfect tense, it indicates that God placed his love on believers in eternity past. Past. If you read 
Ephesians. We've, we've read this before, but just I'll read it for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us, who? He, God, chose us, believers, in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Very clear. Now people look at that and they get upset. They don't want to hear that message. You know, I'd rather make my own choice. Well, if you make your own choice, your choice is going to go to hell. <laughs> That's the choice you're making, frankly. If you're not responding to God's call upon your life. Out of his influence and selective love, the Father determined who would believe from the foundation of the world. None of us were there. We weren't living at that point. It was before the foundation of the world. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom and his infinite power, chose us for selected us to be saved. Um, and that love required him to give his own son to die on a cross for us. Because we couldn't die for ourselves because we're not perfect. It required a perfect, penal, a perfect sacrifice for the penalty of sin. And out of his love, he sent, after we were saved, the Holy Spirit to, to not just to, to, to indwell us, but even to convict us before we were saved. He sent the Holy Spirit to draw us to, to himself in saving faith. He regenerated our sinful hearts. He gave us a new a new heart, transformed us, took us from darkness to light. And it's out of that love that God has for us that he continues to secure us. He continues to keep us. I mean, are you so glad that you didn't pick God, that God picked you instead? You don't have to go to bed tonight wondering, wow, am I going to unpick God tomorrow? Am I, am I going to want to move to a different team tomorrow? It doesn't work that way. When, when God selects you, when God calls you, when God saves you, it's permanent. It's permanent. And it's not based on what you do. It's not based on who you are. It's based on whether or not you believe that his son died for you. His son paid the sacrifice for your sins. In 1 John 3, 1, the Apostle John write, wrote this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. I mean, it took an incredible amount of love to love someone who was not loving. Have you ever tried to love somebody that's not loving? Have you ever tried to love somebody that's just cantankerous and doesn't have anything to do with you? And it's just, you know, I mean, sometimes they're evil. I mean, frankly, you know, you're trying to be nice to them and they're just, ah, the claws come out. And you want to you get angry, right? You want to fight back. You wanna, what are you trying to do? I'm trying to be nice to you, you idiot. And, you know, you, you, go, you go down that road. Well, that's not good either. So, you know, it's hard to love people who are not lovable. And none of us are lovable, frankly, in the sight of God. When he says, see how great a love, in, in 1 John 3, 1, that, that word, how great, potapas, is, is in the original, and it means from what country? 
From what country does this kind of love come from? Where is this kind of love? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Where did this love even come from? Because as a human being, I can't even comprehend it, frankly. It describes a divine love as something that's totally, completely alien to our ability even to comprehend it or understand it. It's an otherworldly kind of love because it's divine. I mean, people usually don't love strangers. They especially don't love their enemies. And yet God chose to love elect sinners even when they were defiant sinners. Even when they weren't heeding his call. He said, I'm still going to love you. (laughs) I'm going to love you right through to salvation. As believers, we did nothing to gain his affection. As a matter of fact, we did everything to invite his wrath. When you stop and think about it, we were rebellious. We were running in the opposite direction. We were running from God, not to God. And the Father loves and he he sacrifices for redeemed sinners with that same love that he even has for his own son. It's a love that's infinite, it's eternal, and it's completely secure. John wrote in his Gospel in John 13, 1, that that he loved his own and he loved them to the end. And what that means is it's meaning that he loved them perfectly. And he loves them forever. As a matter of fact, in Romans, Paul wrote in Romans 8, we've read this many times, but it's encouraging to read it again. Romans 8, verse 38, Paul says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate it. Nothing can break that bond we have with Christ once it's established, once we are yielded to his call of salvation, once we put our faith, our trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And then lastly here, he says that he, he keeps us. He says that we are, are kept for Christ or by Christ. It means to observe, to pay attention to, to keep under guard, to maintain. Some... Theologians say that it's better rendered, the ESV has it kept for for Jesus Christ. But some study the language, they say, well, it's it's better rendered kept by, kept by Jesus Christ. And that kind of goes along with what other scriptures say too, because in, in various areas of the Bible, the New Testament, especially in John 10, places like that, Christ talks about his sheep. He talks about those whom he's called. And he, he said this, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Whenever I read that verse, I think of what David Hawking says. He goes, you know how big God's hands are? He holds the whole universe in his hand. And he says this, he goes, you may be able to jump from knuckle to knuckle, but you're not jumping out of the hand of God. 
And that is so true. It's so true. Jesus Christ has promised to keep believers secure for all eternity. And the reason a lot of believers struggle with eternal security, they're constantly wondering, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? What? Because they don't understand this calling from God. You know, they're thinking they're a Christian because they raised a hand in a meeting or they walked down an aisle or they did something their parents said when they were younger or something to profess Christ. And that's all they got. You know, I would be questioning my own salvation if I didn't see the hand of God, the Spirit of God, convicting me each and every day. It's an ongoing thing. It's called sanctification. And why is that made possible? Why is our eternal security, how do we know we're kept by Jesus Christ? Because he promised to keep believers for all eternity. He made a guarantee that's only possible by his death on the cross, the Bible says. And through his once and for all sacrifice, Christ extends the forgiveness of sins and the reality of eternal life and the hope of glorification to his followers. And not only that, but what Christ secured on the cross, 1 Peter 1.5 says, the Father protects through his power. And there's no, no person or power on the universe on the earth, in the universe, that's greater than God. And there's nothing that can separate us. That's a wonderful truth. And Jude wants them to understand that right off the bat, because they're probably getting peppered with all kinds of wacky teachings and everything else that are calling this security in Christ into question. They're trying to womb away from the truth, bring them away. Those who believe salvation can be lost should be consistent and be reluctant to engage deadly error at close quarters. It's an important ground on which believers may fearlessly fight false teachers. If you were in fear of your own salvation to be lost, man, I'd I'd be running. (laughs) You know, I'd be scared every night. Am I going to heaven or hell? But because God saved us, because God called us, because Jesus keeps us, because we are beloved by God, we are kept. And then here in verse 2, he just says kind of a prayer of acknowledgement. He says, I thought it was quarter of nine. I was like freaking out. I thought, whoa, (laughs) I did my glasses on. Um, Prayer of acknowledgement, verse 2, he says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He closes out this whole introduction to his letter here with a prayer for his leaders, for his readers. He, he wants them to understand that, hey, you know what? He, he's praying for them. He cares for them. He's concerned. And I love that, that word multiplied to you. He lists three things, mercy, peace, and love. And may it be multiplied to you. The, 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 the verb here means to, to increase to the fullest measure. Not just a little bit of, not just a little bit of mercy, not just a little bit of peace, not just a little bit of love, but just overflowing love. And his his prayer is really that his his hearers, his readers would would really continually enjoy the Lord's blessing, no matter how hard it gets. Because you know what, we can go around the room and share our stories, but you know what, the Christian life is not easy. 
It's not easy, especially nowadays. The trials are there. The tribulations are there. Usually when you tell people you're a Christian, if you tell them you're a born-again Christian, that's even worse. Throw the word conservative in there, that even gets them more lit up. I mean, it's crazy, right? But that should be expected. Jesus said, hey, you know what? You saw what they did to me. Wait, wait till they get their hands on, on you. And that was true of all the disciples. And so I, I'm praying that our time here in this, this small little letter over the next coming weeks will help us see things not just in the normal, but in abundance. That we'll be able to see God's blessing in our life. That we would know God's mercy more intimately. That we would know His peace more completely. That we would understand how much He loves us more firmly. And all of those things would support our, our daily Christian walk before a lost and dying world that desperately needs to see that, you know what, there is one who loves you. There is one who forgives you. There is one who desires a relationship with you. And we can call them to that invitation. We can reveal Christ to them when we live a life that's honoring the Lord. So Jude begins here with the powerful words of his pen. He uses strong words such as servant and called and beloved and kept. All those things in abundance. And he wants us to know more than anything that, you know what, this is available for those who hear the gospel. For those who say yes to his call. You can cry out tonight and say, Lord, save me from my sin. And he'll hear that prayer and he'll answer it. Father, we thank you for our introduction to this small letter of Jude. And what a joy it is to know that this letter of Jude comes uh, to us from you. You wrote this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for it, and, and we pray in the coming weeks to just commit this, this study of it to you. And Our hearts tonight just rise with gratitude when we consider that we are your beloved, that we are those who are called, that we are those who are kept. And we pray in the coming weeks that you'll teach us all that you want us to learn from this, this epistle, this letter. And we pray that you would use it in our lives to help us to uh, contend for the gospel, to fight for the gospel in our own day. And if there's any here tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, tonight might be the night they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I, I, I hear the gospel. I want to respond affirmatively. You can do that even now. And, and Lord, we just pray that you will take us home safely tonight. Bless our fellowship after our study. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.